0: calendar. That's going to be an awesome treat. But today is Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6. It says, Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood splat- spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and the year of my redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm worked salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you this morning. We are here this morning because you are our King and our God. We come and stand in awe of you. We love you. We kneel before you. We reverence you. We thank you that you are not only our Savior, but also the Holy Judge. And we pray this morning that you might show us the glory of your holiness as well as your kindness and mercy. Lord, give us a full picture of you so that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. Even sometimes when that truth is is, uh, difficult and challenging. Lord Jesus, we uh, want to pause and thank you this morning as well for the life of Pope John Paul II. Lord, we think of this man whom you used powerfully to uh, really change this world. Uh, He was an instrumental tool in the bringing down of communism. Lord, he stood up for the value of human life at all stages. Lord, he spoke spoke many things, God, that, that changed this world for the better. And Lord, we thank you for his life. And Lord, I pray for the Catholic Church now and for those cardinals as they gather to select the next pope. Lord Jesus, I pray that you might raise up a man who loves the Word of God. That you might raise up a man who believes that the Word of God is truth, And that it might even be more important than what the traditions of the church say. Lord Jesus, raise up such a man. We know that you can do it. We know you've raised up such men before. Lord, bring a man who has the Word of God in his heart. And Lord Jesus, I pray for this church that we might be a church that loves the Word of God not only in name, but in reality, Lord. May it be the way we live. Help us to, to bend our lives to fit God's Word. And now, Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word, we pray that You would speak to our hearts, that You would fill us up with the love of Christ and with a worship of Him through the, the witness of the Word. Lord, just as the streams all around us are overflowing their banks, we pray that our hearts would be overflowing this morning with a worship and awe and a love for Christ. And I pray this in His name. Amen. So, uh, a couple years ago, several years ago actually, I uh, had a conversation with a couple that wanted to see me. It wasn't anyone associated with this church or anyone that you would know. It's kind of a random connection. But the situation was, this couple had been dating, and uh, she was a devout Christian, and he wasn't. I I guess if I could label him, I'd call him a new age, or probably the best way to, to label his religious views. and. You know, they were dating, and then they started getting more serious and more serious, and then they started talking about marriage. And uh, suddenly she was putting the brakes on, saying, look, I, I can't marry you. And he's like, what? what? <laughs> well, you're not a Christian. Whoa, and you know, I felt so bad for the poor guy. He was, he was totally blindsided by this. Like, where is this coming from? And he did not understand what she was talking about. You know, God is love, isn't he? And we love each other, and, you know, what's the big deal? And he just, it didn't make no sense to him. So he wanted to talk to a Christian minister to try to understand, you know, where, uh, where this was coming from, just to try to get his arms around this whole idea. So we had a conversation, and it was very cordial and polite, and, and in as nice a way as I knew how, in as polite a way as I could, I, I tried to explain that, yes, in fact, the Bible, you know, teaches rather clearly that as People who are in Christ as believers, we're not supposed to be knit together in a permanent relationship. We're not supposed to enter into a permanent binding relationship with someone who isn't in Christ. I mean, to to be a Christian is to be in Jesus fundamentally. That's our identity. And so to knit myself in, as, as the Bible calls marriage, a one flesh relationship with somebody who's not in Jesus, to enter into that knowingly, that's the problem. Then you know, this just makes no sense. And so I tried to explain it, and I tried to explain that, you know, Jesus is the, the Savior, and that we're all sinners, and that you need to be reconciled by God, and he just was not going anywhere. <laughs> you know, it, 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 he had a worldview, and I had a worldview, and there were no bridges. We, we were reaching out, but, you know, there was this great gulf between us, and, and so the conversation ended, and I never saw them again. Uh, but after that, uh, shortly after that, though, he did send me an email, a very nice email, thanking me for my time. And, you know, he's a very nice person. But um, he also said in his email, I want to share with you what my understanding of God is. And, and he gave me his perspective on God, which is interesting. And, and basically he said, you know, the God, as I understand God, God is love. God is inclusive. God is, is embracing. God doesn't divide people into believer, unbeliever, into you know, Christian, non-Christian. He, he, he accepts everybody as they are. He loves everybody. There's no divisions. And, and he said that the God that I know is more like a friend to me. He's, he's there for me. He helps me. He supports me. And, and he said, when, and I remember this line, he said, when I make mistakes, he says, my God kind of laughs. And he smiles. Because he understands that, that I'm just human. And, and he's, he's okay with all that. And it was interesting as I sort of read through that email, I was... Uh, you know, just thinking about it. And, and one of the thoughts that struck me was, I bet this depiction of God would resonate with most people in our culture. I, I bet if you said, this is who God is, and you read it, everyone would be like, right, you know, this is the kind of God that you could talk about on a talk show, and people would be like, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of truth in it. I mean, God is a God of love. The Bible says in 1 John, God is love. And God is a friend to sinners. He he comes and helps sinners. He is the great helper. And God does have mercy and forgiveness when we blow it. He, He does show grace and forgiveness. But there's also another side of God. There's another side of God that's in Scripture. He is also holy and righteous and pure. See, the thing is that the God in that email is not a God that you could ever really worship. You never really stand in awe of that God. You would never tremble at the thought of that God. But, but the God of, of the Bible is also a God who is holy, who causes us to tremble. There's another side to God. Yes, God is love. It says that right in 1 John. But you know what also says in 1 John? God is light. In other words, that talks about His purity and His holiness. And so, for a full-ordered picture of God, we have to understand Him both in His loving mercy, but also in His holy justice. And Isaiah chapter 63 is a vivid, no, that's too weak a word, shocking picture of the other side that we and I would tend to ignore. But it's important, and this is why we study through books of the Bible, so we don't... You know miss things and just focus on the things we like. We have to hear the whole picture. And here's the other side of God. Isaiah 63 is a, a vivid picture of God's justice, His holiness, and his hatred of sin and of evil. Let's look at Isaiah 63 together. Uh, it's a very simple passage in terms of its structure. There's two questions, followed by two answers. So it goes Q and A, Q and A. That 's how the passage is structured. Very simple. And the first question is in verse one. Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra with his garments stained crimson? Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? So that this opening scene of this question is, I guess it's something like a watchman standing on a wall or on a tower, and he's looking out, you know, doing his watching thing, and he sees this guy coming down the road, and, you know, eagle two, this is eagle one, we've got someone coming from Edom. Looks like garment stained red, striding in his strength. Please advise. You know, this is kind of the thing. He, he sees this guy coming, and so he, he calls out, and, uh, and notice, notice this figure. There's three things about the figure. First of all, he's coming from Edom. Now, just a quick geographical refresher. Uh, Land of Israel, right? Mediterranean Sea, Egypt, Turkey, or Asia Minor. All right, you with me? And then right here, imagine the Jordan River coming down, the Dead Sea, down here. Over here is Edom. It's to the southeast of the Dead Sea, the Edomites. Uh, and their capital city was Basra. So he's coming from Edom. And what's significant, I think, about Edom is that in the Old Testament, Edom is, are the perennial enemies of the people of Israel. They're always the, the classic bad guys. And in fact, in many texts, they come to symbolize the enemies of God and the enemies of God's purposes. So I think that's why Edom's being mentioned. So just kind of take that little factoid and tuck it away because it's going to help us interpret the passage as we get down to the more difficult parts. Notice the second thing about this fellow. His garments are stained crimson. Now, this is a very difficult verse to translate in Hebrew. The, the NIV's taken some liberty with it here. It's more like he has bright garments. He has, it literally is his garments are leavened. You know, they're spicy. They're tasty. They're, they're You know, which in the visual realm would be something like, they're bright. So, you know, there's a guy walking down the road, and he's just got these really bright clothes on. Bright red clothes. Like, what in the world? Yeah, typically, you don't wear just an all, you know, cherry red outfit everywhere. I mean, unless you're really trying to make a statement, have some all red outfit. Unless you're, you know, I don't know, a rock star or something. So here's this, this bright red outfit. And then the third thing you notice is that this is some kind of Warrior. Look at verse, the end, end of verse 1. It says, Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? So it's not just some guy kicking down the road, kicking rocks. He's, you know, he's striding. He's kind of strutting and swaggering like a warrior and a champion. You know, like when the... I don't know if you ever watch All-Star Wrestling. I mean, you, you don't. But, but if you have. Um, <laughs> you know, those guys get in the ring and they, you know, they kind of strut around. You know, this, this guy's coming down the road like a a champion, he's he's swaggering, he's strutting, he's this sort of magnificent, strong person. And the watchman says, who is this? Coming from Edom, garments bright red, swaggering, striding forward in greatness and strength. And then the answer comes at the end of verse 1. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. In other words, it's God. It's a picture of God. Whenever in Isaiah it says, it is I, or I am, that's always God language in Isaiah. It's this classic self-identification language for God within Isaiah's uh, lingo. And and also it's confirmed because he says, I'm speaking in righteousness, which is an attribute of God emphasized in Isaiah, and he's mighty to save, which of course in Isaiah, God is the savior from beginning to end. So this is God saying, it's me, I'm God. Alright, so that's the first image. And then the second question, the, the, uh, the guy on the wall sort of picks up his binoculars and he takes a closer look at the clothes. So now the focus is going to shift to that second attribute, the red clothing, the bright clothing. He says in verse 2, Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? So he sees the guy and says, You know, it looks like you've been out stomping on the grapes. Why, why are your clothes all red? Now, you're familiar with the winepress. Maybe you've seen how they did this in the ancient world. Uh, archaeologists have found lots and lots of wine presses. Uh, basically, it's a hollowed-out pit. Sometimes it would be square, some of them were circular, some of them were carved out of the rock, or maybe they'd dig a hole and fill it with plaster to make it smooth. But they'd make this, this big hole in the ground. And then at the harvest time, at the grape harvest, they'd put all the, let the grapes ferment for a couple of days so they'd sort of get really ripe and juicy. Then they'd put them in the wine press. And then that's how they made wine. And so what they do is they'd you know, they'd take off their shoes and they'd go in the wine press and stomp the grapes. And it was a big party. It was, you know, a major celebration time. It was like everyone stopped what they are doing and stomped the grapes. And it was a big celebration. And, and all these people stomping the grapes. And as the juice was stomped out of the grapes, it would flow down a little groove and then there would be a lower basin or a lower cistern and that's where they collected all the wine. So, so that's the image. And now as you can imagine, you know how grape juice stains. <laughs> Like, well, I made the mistake to give my daughter some grape juice on uh, yesterday for lunch and you know of course she spills it I mean I don't know kids they get grape juice they just you know, pour it on themselves or something <laughs> and it just stained I'm like ah oh, Jennifer I gave Sarah grape juice she was drinking you know she's wearing her new outfit and it's all stained so that's this guy he's got these stains and you know the guy's looking at him on the wall saying whoa looks like you've been stomping in a wine press what's going on and notice the answer This is where it gets really graphic. He says in verse 3, I have trod in the winepress alone. From the nations no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. So, so, yeah, God's been in the wine press. He's like, yeah, I've been in the wine press, but I wasn't stomping grapes. I was stomping the heathen nations, the Edoms, the, the people who reject me. You know, and, and, and it's not grape juice all over me. This is like their blood and guts all over me. <laughs> and, and it's even worse. I mean, that, you know, this isn't happy enough kind of images for Sunday morning. He says, he says at the end of verse 3, I trod them down in my wrath. I trampled them in my anger. So it's not like God was kind of walking along and, you know, accidentally stepped on a bug and was like, whoa, you know, sorry. I mean, there's an intentionality to this. It's like gathering them in the wine press and then, you know, it's like, oh, it's, it's, it's stomping. You know just stomping and stomping and stomping and blood is flying everywhere. And, uh, <laughs> it's just a really disturbing image. I mean, it's really unsettling. And somehow we've got to figure out, like, what to do with this image? This, you know, what's this doing in the Bible? And what's this doing, being described of God? It mean, was, If this was a movie, this would be R-rated for violence and gore, and you wouldn't let your kids go see it. If this was an Xbox game, you know, it would be rated mature, and you wouldn't let little kids buy it. You know, and yet, this is right here. It's this picture of God trampling the nations in this horrible bloody, grisly, almost macabre kind of scene. So, so what is this? And the answer is, this is the other side of God. This is the other side. The side that I don't like to look upon. But it's His holiness and His justice. Yes, God is a wonderful, loving, merciful Savior. But He's also... A holy judge. He saves, but he also judges. He rescues sinners from evil, but he also destroys evil and sin. And in fact, the two go together, and interestingly, they're both found in this passage. Notice, uh, I I found three different times that God's fierce fury and judgment against sin is paired right in the same verse with his merciful salvation of sinners. It's kind of interesting. Look at uh, the first ones in verse 1, at the end of the verse. It is I, speaking in righteousness, there's that righteousness of God, mighty to save. Or verse 4, this is probably the clearest. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of my redemption has come. So the time of vengeance is also the time of redemption and, and rescue. Or uh, probably the the last one is down at the end of verse 5. He says, So my own arm worked salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. So wrath and salvation go together. And so here we come upon a very strange theological axiom in the Bible. That whenever God saves, He also judges. That whenever we see God's rescuing hand, we also see God's hand of wrath. That whenever God delivers he also destroys. That that judgment and salvation are are paired together. You know, when God saved Noah and his family in the ark, he also flooded the earth. And when God brought the Israelites through the Red Sea to rescue them, he also used those very same waters of salvation to cover over the Egyptian pursuers. When... uh, Joshua went into the promised land. God delivered the Israelites and gave them this wonderful land flowing with milk and honey. But it was also the time of destruction for the Canaanites who had lived in rebellion against God and his ways. David saved Israel, but Goliath bit the dust. And so these always go together. Or maybe you're here last Sunday. We had Easter Sunday. We studied this great text in Isaiah 65, the new heavens and the new earth, if you were here... You know What an inspiring, lift-me-up-to-the-heavens kind of passage. You know, the new heavens and the new earth. Oh, I can't wait to go there. I can't wait to be a part of that. It, it lifts our hearts up. But you know, there's another side of that, which is what about the old heavens and the old earth? And yeah, God's going to rescue me from my sins someday and lift me up into this new heavens and this new earth. But what about those who persistently and perniciously, continually reject Christ and His salvation? There's another side of the story. And that's the, the other side of his holiness. Whenever God judges, or whenever God saves, he also judges. And if you think about it, it really does make sense. I mean, it's, it's disturbing, it's hard to hear for us, but it, it really makes sense because, all right, let's, let's take this concept of salvation. God is saving us from something. But what's he saving us from? What is he delivering us from? And we go, well, he's saving us from sin. Right. Sin and evil and the devil and the world and ultimately the the whole system, including people who reject Christ and His ways and reject His salvation. And and so He's delivering us out of that. So if He's saving us from that, it means He must also bring His judgment and destruction upon that which is opposed to His glory and His greatness, ultimately. And I think that's the point of the wrath language. If you go back to verse 3, I trampled them in my anger and trod them in my wrath You know, God's wrath and God's anger is not like human anger. This isn't a case of road rage. This isn't a case of God being a rageaholic or just kind of losing it, you know, and just going nuts. And then, like, oh, what did I do? I mean, God's wrath is very measured. It's very appropriate. It's His just, appropriate hatred of sin. And it's always righteous. It's always right. It's always perfect. And in fact, if He wasn't just and if He didn't hate sin, there'd be something wrong with our God. This is a, an appropriate response. You know, we feel it sometimes. Every once in a while, we get a taste of this holy anger. Um, you know, wh- what did we feel when, when the World Trade Centers fell? A lot of things. But among them, I mean, if, if I'm real honest, anger and rage. I mean, there's a part of me that was like, we need to capture Osama bin Laden, and we need to turn him over to a mob and let them just pound him. You know, that's like, I, I feel those things in me like, ooh, I can't believe I'm thinking those things. But, you know, uh, I think if you've thought some of those things, there's some rightness in thinking those things. You know, we shouldn't be like, oh, that's okay. You know, it's no big deal. Let's just tolerate each other. No, 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 no. It's wrong. And, and, and we feel that, that hatred of evil and, and feel that there needs to be something ended here or maybe if you saw the uh, pictures or heard the stories of the mass graves they found in Iraq where where thousands and thousands of Kurds were gassed by Saddam Hussein a, a genocide that took place right under the noses of the world you know whole villages little kids families and and they're just killed you know for no reason except that Saddam was really mean and nasty you, you know when you hear those stories you're like someone's got to catch him and bring him to justice And what I'm saying is that's not completely wrong to feel that way. And every once in a while we feel that holy indignation against stuff that's really evil. Now the difference between us and God is is that we only see it in the extreme cases because we are so numb to sin, we are so numb to morality, we have such moral myopia that that we only see it in the extreme cases. It's got to be really bad before we're like, whoa, that's bad. You know, God sees everything. He sees all sin. He sees it as it is. He has 20-20 moral vision. He he can understand it all. And so he hates all sin. And I think that's one of the reasons pastors like this are hard for me to understand. Because I really don't see the horror of sin for what it is. And I don't see the greatness of God for who he is. And so because I have a watered-down version of sin in my own heart, and I have a watered-down small version of God's glory in my heart, then when I see you know, passages like this, I'm like, God, what's the big deal? Chill out. You know, what are you so mad about? But, but uh, you know, if I were to really see how awesome our God is and truly see how repugnant sin against His glory is, passages like this would make total sense to me. And, and the problem then is my understanding. But God does not lack that understanding. So His wrath is a holy wrath against sin and evil. Let me read you a great quote from John Oswald. Oswald wrote a commentary on Isaiah. Let me just read this quote to you. It's a good one. Oswald said, "God is not the cool judge impartially handing down verdicts on persons in whom he has no personal interest. God is a father whose children have been abused and mutilated. He is a king whose subjects have revolted and tried to usurp his throne. He is the creator" whose creations have perverted themselves into the very opposite things for which they were created. Aristotle's passionless, unmoved mover is the farthest thing from the God of the Bible, whose love is more enduring than the mountains and whose fury is more white-hot than molten steel. So, what are we supposed to do with Isaiah 63? How are we supposed to understand this God? And I think the answer is... Isaiah 63 should lead us to worship Him. should lead us to stand in awe of Him. Not that we're grisly people who like violence, but, but we should worship a God who hates evil and who will bring an end to evil in the world. That, that should make us happy. You know, we gripe about how messed up things are. Well, God's like, I'm going to do something about it. That's the ultimate Christian answer to the problem of evil in the world is Jesus is coming back to do something about it. And so we worship God because he is holy and righteous and he does bring justice in the end. And so I think in that sense, you know, this passage should almost fill us up with joy. You know, you're probably like, what? This is really sick. No, no, really. Joy in the sense of God's righteousness prevailing. That should give us joy. There's joy in seeing evil defeated and goodness prevail. That's a wonderful thing, even though it, it could be horrible in the process. Uh, you know, I was trying to think of a way to illustrate the joy of this, and there was a certain movie that came to mind. Oh, what's the name of that movie again? Oh, well, it starts with an L. It's Lord of the Rings, of course. I kind of forgot. And uh, if you've seen this movie, The Lord of the Rings, in the final movie, The Return of the King, there's this scene where or uh, if you've read the books, the, the city of Gondor, which is a good city, is under siege by the forces of Mordor, the orcs and the trolls. and you know, They're the bad guys. And, and they're just, there's hundreds of thousands of them just pouring against the city. They've broken down the gates. They're starting to invade the city. They're burning it. They're tearing it down. And it looks like the good guys are done for. You know, they're not going to be saved. They're destroyed. And all this evil and chaos and destruction is pouring through the gates. And then suddenly, dawn breaks over the hill and do you hear... <laughs> and, and, you know, everyone looks on the hillside and upride the cavalry, literally. They're, they're, they're these horsemen, they're called the, the riders of Rohan. And the riders of Rohan are, uh, they're like Norsemen who ride horses, they're kind of warriors who ride horses. And it's this amazing visual, obviously it's done with computers, but it's like the sun breaking over the horizon and like 5,000 horsemen all lined up for a cavalry charge. And, you know, you're like, ah, you know, they're here. And and the orcs, you know, turn their ranks to face the oncoming cavalry charge. And they try to steady themselves, but you can just see the orcs, you know, becoming terrified. And down the hill rides this cavalry charge. And, I mean, they just cut through the lines of the orcs like butter. They're just, you know, trampling them down. And the orcs are being trampled like in a wine press. And, you know, when you're seeing that scene, you're not like, those poor orcs. (laughs) You know, those writers of Rohan are so intolerant. (laughs) This is just wrong, you know. They need to respect orcish culture. And, you know, you're just like... You know, I'm I'm in my house with a broom going... (laughs) You know, and... (laughs) Because you want to see good win over evil. You want to see evil obliterated. You're like, yes, it's getting obliterated. That's why it's joy. is not in the sense that we like violence or like seeing pain. It's not sadism. It's just you love to see righteousness triumph. Tolkien's book is even better. The book's even better. Let me read you a passage. I've tried to describe it for you with my faltering words, but listen to listen to Tolkien's description. He says, "For morning came, morning and a wind from the sea. And darkness was removed, and the hosts of Mordor—that's the orcs—wailed, and terror took them, and they fled and died, and the hoofs of wrath rode over them." I love this line. And then all of the host of Rohan—all oh, these are the horsemen burst into song. And they sang as they slew. For the joy of battle was on them. And the sound of their singing that was fair and terrible came even to the city. Isn't that just a, a shocking line? I love that line. They sang as they slew. There's there something about the joy of righteousness being, being set forth. You know, there should be a, some, a joy in this that God is triumphing. We have a battle song like this. You know the song? Oh, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning from His terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. You know that song. It's, it's all about God's judgment day. We need some more hymns about the Judgment Day. Not not that we're, you know, negative, triumphalistic, you know, Christians who want to see everybody die. but, But we want to see God's glory vindicated and we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And we celebrate the crucifixion and death of Jesus. And we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But what about the second coming of Jesus? That's just as important in the salvation story. And we have to celebrate that too. And celebrate God's victory over evil in this world. And that's the victory that we see when Christ returns. Let's take a quick peek at that last scene. It's in the book of Revelation, chapter 19. Last book of the Bible. You should be able to find it easy. Revelation chapter 19, very end of Revelation. And here's a wonderful picture, a terrifying picture, an awesome picture of Christ returning to save His people and bring bring judgment and justice and righteousness. It's uh, Revelation 19, verses 11 to 18. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read this passage. And within this passage are two clear allusions back to Isaiah 63. I'm going to see if you can find them. This is the, sort of the Bible quiz. I'll read it and you read along with me and see if you can identify the two clear references back to Isaiah chapter 63. Alright, so here it goes. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him. There's the charge of the the Rohan, right? Riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Now, did you see the two references to Isaiah 63? Now, one should, be, should jump right out at you. It's in verse 15. At the end of verse 15. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Straight out of Isaiah 63. There's another one. I don't know if you saw it or not. It's back in verse 13. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, you know, until I did this study, whenever I had read that passage, I assumed that was a reference to Christ's blood shed on the cross. But given the Isaiah 63 background and given the context of warfare in this passage, I think that has to be a reference to the blood of his enemies being trampled in war. This is another Isaiah 63 reference. Behold the other side of Jesus. Jesus came the first time as a helpless baby, but he'll come the second time as a conquering warrior king. He came the first time and they put him in a manger where horses eat. When he comes the second time, he's going to be riding on a war horse. He came the first time in in obscurity and quiet and stealth. He, He sort of snuck into the world. But the second time he comes, every eye will see him. And he'll be announced with the sound of the war horn and the battle trumpet. Jesus came the first time to be trampled upon by the world on the cross to to allow the world just to walk all over Him. But when He comes the second time, He will do the trampling of the nations. He came the first time to be executed for the sins of people like me, for sinners like me. But when He comes the second time, it will be to execute sinners who have rejected Him time and time again. And, And so, come to Christ. If this is how the story ends then you need to be on the right side of the story you need to know Jesus because today is the day of salvation tomorrow is the day of vengeance and so come to Christ today while there's still time You know, let me break it down as simply as I can God will punish all sin all sin either on the cross or against me personally Either my sin will be punished on the cross through Christ and I find forgiveness and salvation or I reject Christ and my sin will someday be punished at that great trampling of the nations. One way or the other. And so, God's going to punish me, I just have to decide, you know, is it with Christ or is it with me? <clears throat> so come to Christ. You know, what, why wait any longer? Every second that ticks by... The hoofbeats get louder and louder. The the cosmos is shaking even now with the coming judgment of God. You know, why wait? What are you waiting for? Uh, The door of the ark is open. Right now, it's open. But when the door of the ark shuts, it's shut. And there's still time to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah. But you know, once morning comes and the brimstone comes, then it's too late to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now is the time to come to Christ and to come to him and say, Jesus, I am a sinner. I want to know you. Forgive my sins. Make me right with you. And God will do it. Now is the time to do that. When I was in high school, um, I had a pastor in my church. Just an inspiration. Probably one of the reasons I became a pastor was because of this guy. His name was Frank White. Pastor Frank is what we called him. And the Pastor Frank was just an amazing speaker and amazing pastor. But uh, Frank became a Christian when he was in the military, he had lived kind of your stereotypical military life. You know, he's hard drinking, hard wild living. And then he became a Christian and, you know, he stopped drinking and his life changed and he was trying to tell all his buddies in the military, oh man, I've I become a Christian and they're all like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was this one friend in particular who Frank was trying to tell about Jesus and what, how his life was changing in Christ. And, and this guy said, yeah, Frank, you know, it's just a fad, it's just a phase you're in. You know, I don't want to hear all this Jesus stuff. You know, leave me alone. And Frank said, Yeah, but what if ten years from now I'm still following Jesus? And, and if I talk to you ten years from now, would you listen to me then? And the guy said, Yeah, okay. If ten years from now you're still following Jesus, you're still into this, then fine. You know, let's, we'll, we'll talk and we'll see that it's not a fad. You know, just leave me alone. Um, and so they kind of parted their ways. Frank went on to seminary, became a minister, helped plant a church in, in the Denver area. And lo and behold... Some 10 years later or so, I don't know exact number of years, he was walking through downtown Denver, in a crosswalk crossing the street and bumped into the guy. It was like, hey, hey, you know, oh, glad to see you. And he remembered that conversation. He just went right to it. He said, Hey, do you remember 10 years ago? When you said that, and he related brought the whole thing to mind, he says, well, I want you to know I'm still following Christ. In fact, I've become a pastor. It's been the most wonderful thing that's ever happened to me. And you said that if I was still doing it ten years later, you'd listen to me. He says, let's go grab a cup of coffee. (laughs) And the guy said, no. I don't have time for that. And then they, they walked away. You know, that man, through Frank White, had a brush with Jesus. Jesus was met him in the crosswalk. Jesus found him in the crosswalk. Jesus held out the hand to him in the crosswalk, and he you know, did the old stiff arm. And this morning, we all are having a brush with Jesus. He's here. Not in me, not in anyone here, but in through his Bible, through his Word and his Holy Spirit, he's here and he's meeting us again. And... You know, there's not an infinite number of times He's going to do this. There's a set number of times until finally the door of the ark shuts. And so, I would just plead with you. I plead with you. Because I care about you. And God's filled up my heart with love for you. Even though I don't know you. I, just, I have this love from God in my heart for people who don't know my Savior. I just want to plead with you. Know Jesus. Come to know Christ. Put your faith in Him today while the the salvation day is here. Because I don't want you to have to see the other side of Christ. Amen.